welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is another episode in the Berlinale series for the 2022 edition. More or less wrapping up, but there are, for my money, uh, a couple of big titles, maybe more than a couple, that I haven't talked about yet, and I'm very happy to be talking about them with Giovanni Marchini Camia. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, what are you going to be writing about the uh, festival for? Uh, well, I actually already filed all my pieces. I did, um, oh no, it's not true. I have one more. Uh, I did an interview with, um, Dan Ekomian about Afterwater, which was, uh, this, uh, his second feature, which, uh, premiered in forum. And mm-hmm. I did a wrap up for Sight and Sound that will be in there. Oh yeah. The, the interview was for Filmmaker and it's online. The wrap up for Sight and Sound will be in the print edition. And then I've got still to, to write an interview with uh, Ulrich Seidel that will be in the print edition of CinemaScope, the next print edition. Oh, cool. Well, mm-hmm. a lot to look forward to. Generally, you, you had a packed festival, I understand. You, you probably saw more movies than I did. <laughs> yeah, and since since I live in Berlin, it's pretty lucky because they, they have press screenings in the weeks before the festival, all the sections uh, except the competitive section, so no competition, no encounters but the others do and always make sure to catch as many forum films as I can so mm. through those press screenings and at the festival I think in total I saw about 40 films very good you can speak with authority when you're talking about <laughs> something is the best of the festival I'm like yeah I think he probably knows <laughs> sure um, but it, it sounds like we are going to be talking about mostly films from encounters mm-hmm. um, and that's great because yeah, you know, as I said in the beginning, one of those films was a delightful surprise. This film from Cyril Schäublin uh, was just absolutely terrific, I thought. And that is Unrest. You were a fan of Unrest as well, right? Absolutely. No, I think in terms of, because I hadn't seen his first feature. So for me, it was a really a discovery. And I think in terms of the films that I went in blind, this is probably the one that struck me the the strongest yeah and the the premise of it is i mean maybe we can piece it together it's well it starts in oddly uh russia uh, <laughs> or it, a, a scene set in russia uh, and it's a really nice way into the movie because you see three or four you know i don't know if they're supposed to be sort of aristocratic or like haute bourgeois you know a young woman talking about someone they all know peter kropotkin Mm-hmm. And poor Peter has, has somehow has left town, is not around anymore, and has fell in love with a photo of, of someone in, in Papua New Guinea who he fell in love with a picture, basically. <laughs> and they all regard this as very tragic. You know, he's gone off to S- Switzerland. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he is in a region that specializes in um, watchmaking. I don't know if you want to take it from there. Yeah, it's the, the region is the, I don't know how you pronounce it in English, but in, uh, in German, it's Jura, the Jura Mountains, uh, which I understand is where Cyril Schäuben, the director, is from, or is his family's from. He comes from a family of watchmakers. And this is the late 19th century, 1870, if I co- remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And there is... A fledgling anarchist movement among these watchmakers at the at the factory, and that's basically 
all the film is about. There isn't a very strong story, and you just you witness this emerging uh, anarchist movement among them, and it's just it's such an odd period piece. It's very already the focus is very surprising, but then it, the way it's portrayed, it, you have. Well, it's almost fetishistic in the way it shows this watchmaking. It's very, you have these extreme close-ups of these incredibly delicate operations that they do to construct these these watches by hand. And you see every step and it's kind of like one of those films, like say The Conversation or Blow Out that show these analog processes in, in such detail. Mm. And then the rest of the film is in these very distanced shots, uh, very, very formally rigorous distant shots of, uh, yeah, the people in this village. I don't know. It's, I don't know how to describe it, the, the surprise of it because everyone acts in this sort of, the performances are very muted, very kind of mannered in a way. And it has this very... Um, comical effect so it's all very funny and odd and very engaging even though the material itself doesn't inspire a very engaging sort of treatment just to see it described i don't think Uh, it's not as if the movie is building up towards some big revolt or something or some rebellion you know if if we're seeing if we're seeing the beginnings of anarchist activity it's just more like a little discussion here, you know, a little common grievance there, um, people chatting about this here, people chatting about that there. There's a disagreement in a, in a, in a pub, in a public house when, when a, a picture goes up, but then they, they have a vote and then it's settled. So there are all these little glimpses of different types of popular or political activity, but it's at the stage of they're just kind of talking about it. And it's all shot in a really remarkable and remarkably consistent way uh, that is basically off kilter. It's as if he's shooting, he's framing each shot, oftentimes just like a couple of feet higher mm-hmm. and to the left or something like that than you might expect. Or if it's a pe- some people talking together, they're not going to be taking up the whole frame. No. And it's this great way of decentering, you know, what you would think would be the usual focus or what would be usual even like power center and or even the usual way of approaching this town or this village like you're not going to see a grand view of the town square you're going to see like three or four watchmakers and Kropotkin you know standing just kind of having this casual conversation and I found that it just made every shot kind of a surprise and as you said it ends up being pretty comical uh, as well yeah I mean like what one shot is one of these very distant shots but there is in the foreground a tree and the trunk takes up most of the middle of the, <laughs> yeah. of the frame uh, and yeah since it's about anarchism at the same time it's the most placid treatment of anarchism imaginable you know you think like strong emotions passion whatever but no they're just they're very <laughs> calm it's like it's it's funny i don't know if you know switzerland because it like it, i think it, it plays with a lot of the <laughs> the cliches about switzerland and and it's it's an incredibly swiss film i don't know if, if uh foreigners will pick up on the fact that three different languages get spoken mm. mainly french and swiss german but they switch between them sometimes in the same conversation they will be talking two different languages uh, two different people 
Yeah, I, I agree that that it, there's there's something peculiarly uh, Swiss about it. Also, just the sense maybe of the way rules are enforced in this mm. friendly but but firm way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, there's this kind of running joke of these two police officers who are you know constantly telling people to move or not <laughs> to walk into a certain direction, and it's not even because you know there's some you know, verboten area, it's because a photo is being taken in, in these areas. And so they tell Propotkin at one point, oh, you can't walk here because they're taking this photo of the factory or something and or photo of the area and you're not part of that. So <laughs> it's kind of a double meaning there for him as a visitor as well. Yeah. And those, those photos, if I'm not mistaken, are always being taken for a prospectus of the factory. <laughs> Yeah, you have the factory, which is kind of controlling this whole town, and that's part of the the whole political aspect of this film. That I think it, it it's referring to the fact that Switzerland, in a way, I don't know if you can call it the birthplace of capitalism or the best. In a way, a lot of that capitalist culture does come from Switzerland and was sort of. Re- most perfectly realized in Switzerland. So to have this anarchist spark in this context, it's inviting reflection on on capitalism more broadly. And and mm. there's all the there's the aspect of time, obviously, because the standardization of time was one of the the great steps in the development of capitalism and in um, Fordism. And it's all there, and it could go either in either direction. But obviously, we know the direction it eventually went in. And he, he plays on that standardization of time quite funnily. There's also, there's four different time, for, uh, I don't know how you describe it. Like, oh yeah, time zones or yeah. Yeah, sort of in the same town. There's the the town center time, there's the factory time, there's the telegraph time. They're all a bit, a, a half hour, an hour removed from one another. <laughs> and it causes all this confusion. And yeah, no, it's, it's really... It's an incredibly original film, so so packed with ideas, and yeah, like, mm. and it's also just beautifully shot. It's so gorgeous to look yeah. at. It, yeah, it it really is uh, on on every level. Like even when they're giving you these close ups of the watch mechanisms mm-hmm. or this the glimpse of the workshop uh, where I mean one of the workshops it's also it's, it's all women and you know in, in a line kind of working on these things, and uh, I agree full of ideas. It's not just like a, a novelty or a, a novel setting. Um, all of these ideas have a way of kind of, you know, firing synapses about all these other ideas mm-hmm. because it's, which captures the moment when you have so many different kinds of new technology and new ideas at the same time, you know, also the, the telegraph figures in here and each of these things is an opportunity for control mm-hmm. uh, or for, or for power struggle, you know, in some way. And but you're seeing it also in like a very intimate level, and and also not to make it sound like they're all talking about politics, they're also just talking about like regular stuff and talking in a very ordinary way, which I think is also um, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and all those, it's a really non because obviously it's politics uh, are very obvious, but it's not preachy, it's not heavy, mm-hmm. and also this yeah. new technologies thing, the new technology are greeted with such enthusiasm, you know, like the the. The guy who sells the pictures, he just, they're, yeah. they're just regular yeah. pictures and every, there's a few scenes where he sells them to the villagers and the villagers are so excited to be buying these pictures. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, it's these adorable scenes. It makes, yeah, the portrait is so rich and, and engaging. 
Yeah, definitely a big highlight. And, you know, not that I always pay too much attention to what gets awards, but I, I had a sense that this might just get something. And, and mm-hmm. sure enough, uh, it did win uh, Best Director mm-hmm. uh, for, for Cyril Shriglin in the uh, Encounter section. Well, so yeah, so that is Unrest. And another film also in Encounters, this is a movie that it's really trying something different because it's it's really trying to get inside the headspace of someone uh, in a way that's not really done that often at all. Um, and that is the movie Queens of the Qing Dynasty, directed by Ashley McKenzie, a Canadian filmmaker whose first feature was Werewolf. What did you make of uh, Queens of the Qing Dynasty? I really liked this one as well. It was another uh, positive uh, find, a very good find in um, in Encounters. It was very, very odd as well. It was another very surprising film. And, and there's something to be said about performances because although mm. the films couldn't, between Unrest and this one, they couldn't be more different, but there is something in the way of, having sort of mannered, muted uh, performances in art house films that is quite interesting. And because our our reference is always Bresson for these kind of, when, when you kind of drain emotion from uh, from performances, but neither of these is Bressonian at all. And I find that it's part of like a, a greater, I don't know if, it, if trend or practice amongst mm. art house filmmakers to kind of play with performances this way. So in this film... It's about this, um, I guess she's a teen, late teenager who tries to commit suicide before the film stars. And we meet her in the hospital where she's getting her stomach pumped. And unlike the Cyril Schäublin film, this one is almost all or primarily filmed in facial close-ups. And she has this in- incredible face. And she's just, at first you think she's high, but then she's either always high or she always looks high. But it, she has this these huge eyes and this kind of speaks in a sort of draw and very she always looks into the distance. And through this portrait of her, and then a bit later they introduced this uh, character who's a Chinese. The film is set in Canada was a Chinese immigrant trying to get a visa and he's working at the hospital as a sort of social helper. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, he's trans and he has all sorts of conflict related to identity because of being an immigrant and not being able to stay. And the two kind of come together as two sort of outcasts who, who find each other and there's a really nice rapport builds between them. And I don't know. Have you have you read much uh, Dennis Johnson? I I have I have a little, yeah. Because interesting. It, if, for me, I don't know why it, it really struck me. I thought these could have been characters out of a Dennis Johnson book. These huh. these strung out outcasts who kind of float between institutions. Because later she goes to a halfway house, and then she comes back to the hospital, and she's moved to another hospital. And it's a mental hospital. So these, yeah, these these characters with mental issues and drug issues, who mm. kind of build their own alternative communities, and also the dialogue is very odd. They very rarely seems to connect. They sort of kind of speak past one another, which is something mm. very common to Dennis Johnson's characters as well. So that that came very strongly to mind. That's such an interesting comparison. I mean, something more like like Jesus' son or something. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, yeah exactly it's it's amazing because people seem to be not connecting but at the same time connecting on a very deep level often mm-hmm. uh, i mean especially between these two main characters and it's so hard to describe her affect uh, mm. it's i don't want to use the wrong description but i mean it almost seems like it would fall under the term of neurodiverse mm-hmm. in a way uh just in the sense that she is not really like directly reacting to things always, but clearly is taking everything in and, but is also just on another wavelength. And I, I has to be one of the best performances and, and portrayals of anything like this, I have to say, because it doesn't really fall into any of the habits of like an American uh, independent drama, for example, where someone like this would be treated like, you know, either just like a sympathetic curiosity or this kind of fountain of wisdom, you know. I mean, this character is wise, but it's not like she's some precious thing. <laughs> she's she's also just kind of like a total like wild card. Mm. Uh, and a big part of it also is that we get into her almost sound space as well, mm-hmm. I think. Because it's in close-up so much, that's a huge part of the realism of the piece just being in that kind of silent space where I guess attention is is not directed towards any one thing. So you just kind of have this interesting cushioned sort of sonic space that feels perfect for her. And yeah, she has this expression of wide eyes, almost cherubic, cherubic urchin kind of face mm-hmm. uh, to her. This was a really special movie, I thought. Yeah, and it, like, it has this very understated but strong critique of the Canadian social system, which Mm. I know nothing about, but it was just so there with these institutions and the way, yeah, as you said, they they let her out of the hospital, but they put her in this halfway house and just expect her to be an adult overnight. And obviously it goes very wrong immediately. And then she's back in another institution and there is no real rehabilitation. And mm-hmm. the, the Chinese character is this um, other example of, yeah, these, these uh, members of society who cannot integrate. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, the way they found them each other and the rapport between them is incredibly touching. I thought, yeah, it was strong and, and odd. And yeah, what you mentioned about the sound mix is so true as well. The sound mix is so intricate and it, like, it plays off. Yeah, most of it is so silent, kind of. Like, like the the inside of an institution, if you like, but then there's these uh, moments of electronic music, and it, like mm-hmm. it, it conveys this headspace that the main character is in very strongly. And there are also these eruptions and like animation mm-hmm. that occur. I couldn't always tell if they were things that were actually on the, like <laughs> the television in the hospital room, or were just like little flights of fancy that she was having in her head. It's, yeah, yeah. Very, very aggressive animation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad I was I was able to catch this this movie there. I remember liking Werewolf, but feeling like it was a strong entry in a certain type of film. This, for me, is like a good movie and also that, I don't know, breaks new ground in, mm-hmm. in, in what it's portraying. I wouldn't know what other film to compare it to. Yeah, yeah. That's Queens of the Qing Dynasty, and Ashley McKenzie is the director. I think there were just maybe a couple more movies uh, we wanted to talk about. 
Well, I guess there are two that had a high profile because they won prizes. Mutzenbacher mm -hmm. was a documentary from Ruth Beckermann, a well-respected Austrian filmmaker. Were you on board for this one? Or oh, yeah. Did, no, uh, I, love, I love this one. So Mutzenbacher is, the, that's a reference to Josephine Mutzenbacher, which is the title of a Austrian novel published, I believe, in 1905, if I'm not mistaken, anyway, around then. Anon it was published anonymously, and it's a big classic, classic of erotic literature. And it's particularly controversial because the eponymous heroine is, I think, between the ages of 5 and 13 when she has all these crazy sexual experiences. So Ruth Beckerman uh, sets up, and this wasn't, it wasn't clear to me whether it was, if she was actually going to direct a play. I, I had the impression there wasn't going to be a play, but she sets up a casting call for a play about uh, an adaptation of the novel. And she invites only men to sit on her casting couch. It's quite, she makes a big deal of this casting couch, which is pink and floral, which is kind of funny when you think about what the connotations of a casting couch are. And she invites men to audition who don't have to have any sort of acting experience because the, it's just a premise to invite regular people to talk about sex, basically. So they, they read from the novel and then discuss the story. Very often these conversations turn personal. They talk about their own sexual experiences and they converse with Beckerman, who is behind the camera and hers is the only female voice in the whole film. And obviously by being the person behind the camera, it's her perspective. And what I found remarkable about this film is that it touches on a lot of topics about contemporary sexuality, like toxic masculinity and cancel culture, you know, these very topical subjects at the moment. But it does so with such an embrace of ambiguity and with a lot of humor. You know, some of these men say really outlandish things and the conversation through cumulatively as the interviews build up becomes really rich and really engaging and really quite profound at the same time. But these, yeah, these, these subjects are never treated with this lightness and with this acceptance of ambiguity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something else they do in the course of this movie is they, sh they have the participants reading long excerpts mm -hmm. from from the book. I, I was not familiar with, with the book. And so I really only know it through these excerpts in the movie. And yeah, just to be clear, this is this stuff. It's, it's not okay. <laughs> the stuff that's, that's in the book, you know, as he said, it's like an, an erotic text that the main character is underage and is having these elaborate sexual experiences with, you know, older men and women and as one of the men points out, or more than one, the book is kind of almost like a defense mm -hmm. for, for abusive behavior, basically, because in the book, this main character is described as being, as accepting all this. So anyway, I just say that because it is, I agree, it is treated with ambiguity and, and lightness. And I think that's how it allows one to think about these things, because a lot of it is sort of dark at the same time. 
you can tell that a lot of people have just treated this as a an erotic text. Mm-hmm. It's a productively uncomfortable, but as you said, also yeah, there there is a is very skillful touch she has. Yeah, it's a very simple premise that mm-hmm. or deceptively simple premise that really opens up to all sorts of discussions and she's also what's very good about the film is that she doesn't try to make any sort of statements or conclusions it's more about let's discuss this and she does it on purpose to set up that there's often two or three interviews at the same time and then i don't know how she does how much staging there's behind the scenes but these discussions very organically turn into debates and then these men you know one guy says oh i mean from behind an underage woman is always uh, attractive and so the guy would go no absolutely how can you say that and then right it, it, these dynamics are really really fun and really i thought it was a very creative way of staging these kind of societal debates and mm-hmm. yeah exploring them without seeking to make any sort of statement yeah i think I, w- I was very very impressed by it in a way that you might think of something like the act of killing uh just in the sense mm-hmm. that you're kind of that she has them in the room uh you know ostensibly as a tryout you know a casting call um but obviously you know it, it becomes something else but it's that performative it's that performance space that allows people to open up in a way um, and bring forth parts of their thinking that they might not otherwise in in another in another setting Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah very interesting yeah the act of killing is a really good parallel little different in the sense that i don't think she's trying to incriminate people (laughs) although a couple guys a couple guys do (laughs) exactly although yes in the course of it yeah yeah, I mean, I haven't, I don't know what the reviews that you read, I haven't read any reviews yet, but I know just from talking to people that it did rub a lot of people the wrong way. Some people thought it was completely unacceptable to even read these excerpts, which are, yeah, they're, they're really out there. They're like Sadian uh, sort of situations played out by not just a minor, but an actual child. And I think that's a good choice of the movie too, because it's not just this just sharing thoughts or cerebral discussion, she's constantly bringing you back to what the text actually says. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and and that's a good reminder as, as you're kind of thinking through what people are saying and realizing. And it, it throws things into very bold relief when you have a guy who's like, I don't want, I hope none of my grandchildren see this. I don't want to say anything too vulgar. <laughs> and then he proceeds to read like this two page excerpt <laughs> of absolute relish um you know and it's just like oh my god okay yeah uh, no, he, he, he really gets into it <laughs> he does and he just but he and he just looks like a grandpa and then yeah also just in something like that you're just like okay that's just like that's a picture of real life right there you know i mean it's it's not it's not pretty um so yeah i was very impressed by this mm-hmm. uh, so that is uh, mutzenbacher and one more movie which uh, i have not seen and i'm very glad to hear that you have because i was i'm curious to hear about it and that is the death of my mother mm-hmm. it's another second feature in encounters by jessica krummacher she had a first feature called totem in 2011 i think so it's been a a big gap in between Mm -hmm. and i believe it is autobiographical and it starts uh, with this scene between a young woman 
and a doctor and they discuss the young woman's mother who has some sort of medical condition. She's not, she's in middle age, but she's been very sick and suffering for a long time. And she has decided she wants to die, basically. And euthanasia in Germany is not allowed. But the mm. doctor who who runs this, uh, it's not a hospice, but it's a care facility. There is a loophole, basically, that the patient can refuse food and drink. And then okay. essentially starves uh, herself to death and if she wants to do that, then that's a sort of loophole for euthanasia that they can uh, execute. And the way it starts like this, it sounds like the film will be sort of a pro-euthanasia treaties, but it doesn't turn into that at all because the focus is much, much more on the daughter than it is on the mother. And it takes about two weeks for the mother to die. And the film very patiently observes the daughter she has some sometimes she would go and meet family members uh, for dinner or friends of the mothers as they have discussions about it Uh, but most of the time she's in the hospital in in this facility waiting and Mm. it it is quite extraordinary to me and i don't know to what extent a viewer needs to have experienced this themselves to, to, to empathize or to relate, but the very singular experience that is the Death Watch is represented with such nuance, all those, um, all those inner conflicts that one has, which are really contradictory, this guilt that comes from like wanting the way to be over and at the same time for wanting to, to keep going and this these constantly shifting sort of feelings one has towards the dying person, towards oneself, towards the situation, they're all represented in this film with real care and without ever resorting to cliche or sentimentalism. And for me, it was really, really striking. I thought it was so Mm -hmm. strong. It does this in a sort of Formally, it's quite recognizably a German art house film. The way you know you can compare it to the films of the of the of the Berlin School on a formal level. Mm. I, this is something I, I definitely want to see. You know, maybe with a bit of trepidation because, yeah, I, I share some experience uh, mm-hmm. with with that. Does the camera stay mostly uh, with her at home, or does with her at the hospital, or also just her kind of going about her daily life? I mean, her daily life kind of stops. I, I, I okay. can't really remember. I don't know if they say, but she doesn't go to work. She doesn't. She's at the hospital the entire time waiting. The only time she mm-hmm. leaves the hospital is to go for these dinners with family members or friends of her mother. So this be, it becomes very insulated, the space of the hospital. And she, she has some interaction with nurses and the doctor. But mainly it's her alone. It's a very quiet film. And the, the, the actress, I'm not sure if she's a professional or not. I haven't seen her before. Is is really good. And, you know, with this very, with this largely silent performance, she conveys so much of that inner conflict. And the camera patiently observes her. And there's these very sort of quiet moments of poetry uh, sprinkled throughout. No, it's, it's a remarkable film. And, I'm very glad because when I saw the, I hadn't seen the the director's first film from 11 years ago. And when I saw the description and the catalog of the Berlinale, 
I basically, you know, prepared you for euthanasia, so I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to see this. And then someone recommended it, so I went to see it, and I was really struck. Yeah, for me, this and unrest were probably the two highlights of the of this uh, section, and the section generally was very strong. Yeah, I mean, it, it's often a, a subject or an experience uh, that movies can struggle with portraying at any length. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's one thing to be able to do this as the conclusion to a movie or to like the last part of a movie, but to have a movie that is really able to sit with the experience that uh, pretty impressive. I'm, I'm going to want to try to see that as well. Yeah. It made me think, you know, you have, uh, what is the Piala film in English called? Is it Mouth Agape? Yes. Oh yeah. You That's have that wonderful. one. And then you have the Wang Bing one that won the first prize mm-hmm. in Locarno a few years ago. I mean, that's a documentary, but it, Obviously, this is a subject that interests filmmakers, and these are two examples that, for me, do really well. And then I um, can't think of any now, but usually this is so overblown and so mm-hmm. it is incredibly difficult to, to portray. And for me, these three films, the one being the, the Piela and now the, um, the Kulmacha, belong in this, I don't know if you can call it a genre, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just give an extra, uh, throw an extra movie in there, although it's more of a series of experiences, but obviously the Wiseman's near death, Mm -hmm. I think is very, very strong on everything around that, that experience too. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Well, I I think that's, that'll bring us to the end of this particular slice of the Berlin Alley, but I'm I'm glad to hear it sounds like it was a, a Pretty strong and fruitful addition for you. No, for sure. I mean, I don't know if you actually wanted to discuss the Golden Bear at all. Yeah, if you have a second, sure. The, the Golden Bear, which I think is a fine film, I don't have any big objections to it, but for me, it was not at all an exciting film. And I think in, in that sense, it was quite representative of the competition as a whole because, you know, it's this film about a farm, a, f- a family-run farm under threat by socioeconomic forces and the film portrays the last harvest that they have and then the farm will be taken over and uh, the trees will be destroyed mm-hmm. and they'll install solar panels instead. And for me, that is such an unbelievably conventional festival narrative and even though the film portrays the the, fa- the family is very uh, uh, has a lot of uh, there's a lot of family members and friends and there's a lot of characters and the the director Carla Simon is very sketches the dynamics really nicely between them it's lively and all the characters are are rich in the end like what we were talking about with with unrest and Queens of the Qing Dynasty it's this element of surprise and discovery which. Mm-hmm. that film really doesn't offer and uh, what was surprising to me about this year's competition was that in the previous two editions which were uh, since uh, Carlo Chatrian took over from Dita Koslik the competition had been so improved because for 20 years Dita Koslik and the festival and I was there for the second half of of those 20 years the competition was this really bland, 
full of cliches or very rarely you had discoveries or films that pushed the envelope. There was always one or two, but on the whole, it was yeah a bland offering of films that were quickly forgotten. And it had changed since uh, the, uh, the artistic leadership of the festival changed. And this year, it seems to have gone back. For me, there was the Kvaluni and the Hong Sang-soo films, which were both strong and different. And the rest was so much stuff that you really expect from the Berlinale usually. And this this film, Alcaraz, the film that won, was not the worst of the bunch. But yeah, as I said, I think it was really representative of this edition. I did not see all of the competition. So you, as I was saying at the beginning, you you can speak with more authority, but it definitely felt like a perf- a perfected version of a kind of film I'm maybe just not so interested mm. in, which is a film that just when things get interesting or it, it just felt like whenever a scene was about to get into something interesting, they cut away, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. Yeah. you know, or or it lets the, the tension dissipate. It just didn't seem, feel like a curious movie somehow. It didn't feel like uh, a movie that was going to be, it just wanted to seem on this even keel, even though, I mean, ironically, it's talking about some similar things as unrest, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. because the movie ends with a strike, you know, or ends with the farmer's protest and it I didn't even know how to take that like is, is are we supposed to be happy about that is that supposed to be an empty gesture by them because you know most of them are already losing the land or having to give up the land uh it's it was just even hard to get the mood or the tone of the movie sometimes and I was frustrated by the characters because I, I also felt there that you know if, if you're not going to do the collective stuff maybe you'll do the character you know portrayals more and it looks nice uh, I can understand why a bunch of people could agree that this is the movie that they want to honor. Yeah, it felt it felt like a consensus choice. Uh, yes, consensus choice for a, for an award for the top award because, especially with Hong Sang Soo winning the the second prize, I feel like that he must just split uh, split juries because the, the same way he splits audiences because he always wins runner-up or third prize he never gets the top well he did in locarno but at the other festivals he never gets the top one but he always gets a high one so i feel like the jury will he'll have his big fans and then people who absolutely can't stand him just like when when you watch hong tanks with a regular audience and yeah whereas alcaraz is a safe choice that isn't gonna ruffle any feathers everyone can agree it's solid but at the same time I, I'd be very surprised if that film stands the test of time, if anyone's speaking about that film in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I can't argue with that. So that so that's the Golden Bear winner. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> well, the Hong Sang Soo is very good. So <laughs> The Hong Sang Soo is, is, is terrific. Yeah, I, I think everything you're saying about a movie that is, uh, you know, surprising or challenging, uh, you know, Hong especially for Hong, who's a filmmaker that, you know, some people think they is going to be predictable and it always sounds the same when you describe them. I, I couldn't say that about this new Hong movie either. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. All right. Well, we will finish up there. And thank you, Giovanni, for talking about all that you saw. <laughs> See you on the road sometime in the future. <laughs> it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. 
Thank you for listening.